Once you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. Welcome back, beloved listeners, to Octavius Parables. We are on Parable of the Talents, Chapter 6. I am your co-host, Adrian Marie Brown. I'm Toshi Regan. And we are, um, well, we're first checking in to see, do we have any announcements? Anything new that we want to share with the humans? I feel like I'm just doing a lookout for new music announcement. <laughs> <laughs> yes, every time. All of the projects, look out for it. Follow. Yeah, I mean, there's follow. a lot of music people can listen to from the Toshi Regan I'm about to put everything. You've got a new album. You've got the Alexis Undrowned Project. Um, I just feel like you're constantly producing and sharing and showing. And yeah, it's it's such good news. I just got the rights to one of my older records, so I'm I'm about to put a whole bunch of old things, old old new things. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm glad to hear you liberated your your stuff. <laughs> Free. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. it wasn't hard. They were like, yeah, here, take your record back. They're like, it's yours. <laughs> it's Actually, yours. it's yours. Go ahead. Um, well, I don't think I have any announcements this time. You know, there's always something in motion. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, well, maybe I can share again, because I definitely think by the time this episode comes out that holding change will be in the world, which is my facilitation and mediation book, um, yes. Emergent Strategy Facilitation and Mediation. And this book is my best offer of 25 years of doing facilitation and mediation for social justice movements, but offered in as brief of statements as I can. <laughs> so really trying to make mm-hmm. like a Taoist text for facilitators um, and mediators to use. So hopefully it works. Hopefully it's of use and it's on akpress.org. akpress.org is where you can yes. buy that or anything I ever do <laughs> so far in my life. So here we are, singers, writers, and listeners all together at Chapter 6 of the Parable of the Talents. And Toshi, bring us in. Where and when are we? So we are we are with Lauren and Ben Coley's child. And before we see what, what they want to say, we are... God is change, and hidden within change is surprise, delight, confusion, pain, discovery, loss, opportunity, and growth. As always, God exists to shape and to be shaped. And that's Earthseed, the Books of the Living. And Lauren's uh, and Ben Coley's kid, who's uh, actually a grown person, but that's how I, I'm just... <laughs> The so, kid. But that's, mm-hmm. that's how I'm saying, because, you know, is is has just discovered that, you know, when her parents, when their parents decided, when their parents found out that they were with them, I'm trying not to say who they are. <laughs> You're like, they were pregnant. They were pregnant. I'm trying to hold on. I'm losing that battle. Uh, uh, they say, I don't suppose she was really any more prepared for sudden changes than anyone else, but her beliefs helped her cope with them, even take advantage of them when they came. And I enjoyed reading about the way she and my father reacted to my conception. Such mismatched people, yet such a normal reaction. Everything is about to really change. Sunday, December 5th, 2032, uh, the spokesman from Christian, Christian America, 
have announced the church will be opening homeless shelters and children's shelters and orphanages in several states, including California and Oregon and Washington. And this is the beginning, they say, they hope in time to extend a helping hand to the people of every state in the union, including Alaska. As we found out in the last chapter, Alaska is not really feeling being a part of the United States at all. So there's a a little hope that this might be a good thing, but it's very, very tiny little hope. The bigger, 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 bigger news is that Lauren has found her brother, Marcus. Yes. It's really, really incredible. He's alive. It is such a big deal. Um, Lauren thought everybody in her family um, was killed. Um, Zara was a witness to seeing them be shot. So this is extraordinary. How she finds her brother, however, is completely devastating. Um, (laughs) And Bancoli and Lauren are still having the conversation about moving, leaving Acorn, getting into a small town, and not having to kind of live in a state of, of fear that someone will come and try to take over um, Acorn and how dangerous it, is, dangerous it is to have a community that, that people are aware of. Um, they're in a better better place than the Dove Trees were, but they, they're basically going to have this Acorn versus small town conversation probably all the time. And they are got word um, that Dan Neuer's uh, sisters might be with a slave trader. This is a, this is something to really, you know, be good to yourself while you're listening and while you're reading um, this particular chapter. It's just very, very hard. They travel to um, a settlement uh, to look and basically bargain with a slave trader who might have Dan's um, sisters. And that whole process is one, it's dangerous, and two, it's just that it's just very hard to take that that's that's the that's what's happening. <laughs> but the interesting thing about it is they have their regular business, so they're like, we need to go and do our regular business. We need to pick up Bancoli supplies. We need to go to this place. We yeah. need to go to that place. So it's just just again that way of. Of, of never like not doing what needs to be done in yeah. all of the circumstances if it can be done. Like for me, going to see the slave trader would be enough <laughs> for that day. Like, I, would, yes. I, would, I would use all of the energy to be That's... like, okay, let's get prepared for that. But they're like, nope, we need to get these medical supplies and we need to get all of this stuff. So mm-hmm. they take mm-hmm. care of their business and they make their deliveries to two di- different markets they do all of the things that they need to do, and then they start to take their uh, to take their journey towards this to the to the settlement where all kinds of things happen. And before that, we get a little bit more information around the Dove Trees, which is the the family that also own their their land that were attacked by the very strange organized army, and you know what made them vulnerable, being close to the road. And their decision, they've been there for a year, and their decision to stay. And yes. after a year, you might get asked to leave or, you know, invited to stay, and they decide to stay. Yeah. So all of the process and the, the, the deep, um, what do you call that? They just, they just have so much infrastructure to their existence. Yes. And they just try to stick to it no matter what. And multiple yeah. things happen at the same time or on the same day. That if you just did that, it would be enough. But they they do everything that needs to be done. Um, there's yeah. also a mention of the whooping cough coming up in the Bay Area, and uh, you know all of the uh, old things coming back mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. So we're having a hard time in 2032 everywhere. This uh, settlement is called Georgetown, and it's east of Eureka. It's a squatter settlement. It's run by this family, the Georges, and mm-hmm. it just feels like kind of everything goes on there, but that there's yeah. there's some kind of order. This is a very, very, very strong family, lots of people in the family connected politically, and so maybe not in as, as much danger as um, some of the other communities. They seem to have a, a really good relationship to Lauren, but like 
just a very real, a real place. Like, nope, the yeah. slave traders are going to come here. They have to do this very hard thing of looking at, of, of negotiating with this slave trader who's horrible and who himself has a belt on. And yes. they go out. And Which means look, he belongs to someone. He belongs to right? someone, and he can control the other, yeah. the other, the the children that yeah. and that they have, and all the children have the collars that we heard about earlier, and this is just hard for everybody. And still, they do their practice. Natividad is in the truck, you know, keeping guard, and then this one this is this is they don't just walk up in there they make really good decisions and decide how it's going to go and lauren is the one who's negotiating and you see these uh these kids and they're all like lined up and they all have these collars on and dan is very very disappointed to find that like none of them are sisters there's even one that looks like could be from Dan's family. Um, yeah. This this kid had her tongue cut, and so can't speak for herself. And this is like a thing that that you know it showed up earlier in the book, but it's yep. it's becoming a thing, and it feels like there's a certain kind of person or certain you know collection of people who are like this is what you do to mm-hmm. um, to women who talk too much or to mm-hmm. uh, now girls who talk too much. So it's a it's a really, 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 really horrible thing. You know, um, inside of all of this, <laughs> it's interesting the relationships that are that are still happening. The relationships mm-hmm. between women, Lauren, and the uh, the person who runs Georgetown. Um, oh yes, yes, yes. Yeah, she's she's she is not taking anything from anybody. Um, she's holding it Dolores together. Dolores Ramos yes. George. Yes, thank you. And she um, she notices right away that Lauren is pregnant. You know, yeah. Lauren brings um, some beautiful fruit. She has all of these grandchildren. It's like the the way Octavia just makes a landscape of relationships from the worst to the best all at one yeah. time. It is it's really hard for Dan. He doesn't you know he doesn't have his sisters. He is very upset. He is devastated. He is he is just like, I can't even. He's disgusted by the whole practice that Lauren is. He's mad that Lauren is good at it. He's mad that Lauren can actually sit there with this horrible person and um, and negotiate for his sisters. He's mad that that doesn't work because his sisters aren't there. Um, he just can't handle this whole thing. So yeah, that's hard. But all of a sudden, Lauren you know, sees the boy and she's not trying to, you get the idea that she's not trying to actually look at all of the kids and not actually, you know, take in everything. But she notices this beautiful boy and who's actually really a young man. And she knows right away that that's her brother and Marcus. And then she Mm -hmm. goes into negotiation for Marcus. It takes an hour and the man tries to say, He's a 17-year-old, but she knows that that's not, that's not right. That's um, right. And that's what she uses as a, a bargaining chip that, like, I know you're trying to get rid of him because he's not, he's not useful anymore um, for the kind of people that would actually use children. They negotiate, and she buys her brother. And when they get him back to um, Acorn, they um, discover that he just has had a lot of a lot of issues. He was definitely shot. Um, he has burns and he had the collar and just kind of the first thing he does is just realize the collar isn't on him. He stays with uh, Lauren and Ben Coley and they're worried that he might run away at night. And so they tell the people on watch, if you see somebody <laughs> running around, like don't shoot them. It could be him. He yeah. could get scared and try to leave. I guess I want to say also some of what you know, happened to him. He had like three active venereal infections, um, his upper back and shoulder, his left arm and the outside of his left leg were covered with a, an ugly network of old burn scars. He just was, was a mess. A lot had happened to him in the like five, six years since they all tried to, to run away. But she is so happy to find family. And in fact, I was like, this chapter is about family. 
It's a hard chapter about family. And um, and she wants to know what happened to him. And she wants to know the story. But before any of that can happen, Dan actually leaves. And Dan is, is going to find his sisters. And he had enough of that process. And even though he is very vulnerable as a, like, you know, 15, 16-year-old exactly. um, running around and with nothing, trying to find his sisters, he's gone. And the, the watch people saw him leave, but they didn't, they, they you know, heeded um, Lauren's warning that her brother could try to leave. So um, he says, you know, please take care of my sisters. And he'll he'll pay back. He'll come back and he'll work and he'll find his sisters and they'll work and he'll help. But he's off to do that. So she says um, we can't chain him here or rather we won't. If he insists on dying, he will die. And she says, damn him. Damn. That is six. Oof. Yeah. So, you know. Some of these chapters are really, really hard. And this one, I remember the first time I read this one. And each time I read this one, um, this is one of the chapters that consistently moves me to tears. Mm-hmm. Where it feels like the the truth that, that Octavia is laying out here that she holds no punches with is, is amongst the most devastating of the, the truths that we have to face. Yes. Um, and so... I have some questions that are that are you know lighter, but this is also a place because the chapter is hard. The questions are also hard, and so just take care of yourself inside of this. Um, you know, this is a good place if you need to take a break, take a deep breath, burn something, release something. Remember that you are um, not currently in this story, but this story is to help us prepare mm-hmm. um, and to help us avoid this future. Mm-hmm. So deep breaths in, deep breaths out. So my first question for this chapter, it starts right up at the top, is do you know how your parents reacted to the news of your conception? And Mm. uh, do you know the stories? Um, Are they positive stories? Are they stories you feel good about? Or are they hard stories to hear? Um, And if you have parents who are still living, would you want to hear the story again? Right? Um, and if so, go ask, <laughs> mm-hmm. go ask for it. I feel like um, there's something really unique for each person about the signature of their conception. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love that Lauren leaves the notes, leaves this little missive here. Um, maybe, maybe not realizing that this is something that her child would ever read. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my second question is about that little kind of throwaway line that her child says, around like, well, it's good that she made a God, <laughs> that Lauren made a God out of change because it was what she was dealing with all the time anyway. Yeah. And <laughs> I love the cynicism of that idea of just like, make a God out of whatever you're struggling with. <laughs> you know, that's one way to deal with it. Uh, and, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, change is constant. And I, I understand the, the divine nature of it. But if not change, what else have you or would you make a God of? What else has happened in your life, happens regularly in your life? What else is hard um, or constant that you think might actually be a divine force? Mm -hmm. Mm. Do you have something like that? I think the elements, you know, I think like in that the, the God would be being in right relationship with the elements. And I probably I would think a lot about water. Because we're yes. we're so we're made of so much water, yeah, and um, and it's it, it's so necessary. So if you had to live in relationship with keeping water as a sustainable force on the yeah. planet, like it should be, like how would that affect all of the things that you do? I um, like that. I like to think about that. I like that a lot. And that you know that all the humans would have access to water so it mm-hmm. it would make all the living and the breathing water-based existences would need to have their water yeah mm-hmm. i think i'm i we're in the same zone you know i think i would make it nature itself mm-hmm. that like earth is the god 
Earth is the God body, and all the interactions we have with the God body should be worshipful. Mm. Um, he so. said that so nice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think about these things. Yes. Um, so, good. So we have all of our little gods to take us into this next territory. So this feels related as a question then is, is how does your community orient towards homeless shelters or orphanages or other sort of charitable structures that are supported by or created by religious institutions? Because mm. I think that we, I grew up with the, with the idea that these were benign spaces, um, benign or benevolent, you know, that it was like, this is a good, this is either a good or kind of a neutral situation. Mm-hmm. And then as I've gotten older and, and heard more from people who live through um, orphanage or foster care or um, missionary experiences have been in shelters, it feels so often like there's some really messed up stuff that happens in the name of, you know, saving people's souls or, or providing these services. And there's also some really incredible, <laughs> incredible and generous offers from people who really feel like they're doing spiritual work here. So mm-hmm. it's something I have a curiosity about is, do you have such such institutions in your community? How do you orient towards those? Yeah, really good question. Yeah. Next question I have here is, there's this way now that we start to see them moving from individual or familial ownership to communal ownership. And so we start to see that with the way that they're orienting towards the dove tree land and being like, oh, it's okay to go there to gather resources uh, because now we're all living together. And so kind of all of this is all of ours. So the question I have for our listeners is where is a place or what is a resource in your life where you could imagine moving from individual or familial ownership to a communal ownership or communal sense of it? being an accessible resource. And I know that a lot of us have engaged in a lot of mutual aid in this past year. So for many of us, this may have started happening, you know, in that way. Some of us have been living like this for a long time. Um, but do you have anything like that, Toshi, where it's like, oh, this is this is something that I share or that is a cooperative resource in my community? You know, I'm like so supportive of... of- of um, you know, like I love Soul Fire Farm so much. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. and it's not it's not I'm not I don't live near there or anything. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I really love the way that community uh sets itself up. And I have often often been like, could I do that with music? Like, could I uh-huh. actually you know, root a process like that um with music? Cause it feels it it has um they have like you know, the way that they they are as a family. And then that now the family is extended into, you know, other practitioners who actually work and support them. Then that the teaching mechanism and the way that they're like widening their circle by giving away the knowledge and the practice. And then mm-hmm. um, I just started to see like, oh, you know, you can come and pick up your box of food on this day and you can come and do this on this day. And yeah. they, they make products then they they you know sell out in seconds and um, (laughs) i think they're mostly local like you have to be in the area to get them um and i i just love i just love it It, it's it's a a national international call but still very localized i'm kind of looking at that i read the book on farming while black you know even though i i don't think i'll ever be a farmer but i look at that Mm -hmm. as a way there's so much teaching in there about how to structure community, um, and it's and and localized. That's what I love about it is that yep. you're you're there in the space. And I was like, gosh, I wonder if I could do like a music farm based on Soul Fire. So that's something I've been thinking about. My practice yeah. is is to be in congregation with people. So like a lot of the things that I create, I'm I'm always trying to create in a community space. But I'm not definitely not like my mom was sweet honey. Uh, my uh-huh. mom was sweet honey. Um, you know, sweet honey became a, a nonprofit organization with the uh-huh. with the group, and they did 
these two meetings a week and they did this, this, and I'm more of someone who has a call and I'll be like, hi, I'm doing this. Does anybody want to join me on this? Mm-hmm. Um, but in that the years and years of doing that, I've created or been a part of a community of people now that I've worked with for over 20 years. Yeah. And so it's, yep. it's not very, it's not like an organized group, but it's like a group for sure. Yeah. Um, and we work with each other on different things. But I love that Soul Fire Farm model. And I wonder, oh, how would that work with music? I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. Yeah. I feel like I've been in that practice too with Emergent Strategy. The book, uh, when I wrote the book, it, it never to me felt like this is my solo effort. You know, like it felt like it was a weaving process. And then I was like, okay, so we, we, this, this process is woven together from a lot of community. So a lot of the initial resources that came in from it or from facilitation of emergent strategy, those resources then flowed into ESII to be made available for different experiments that would serve the community. And I've been, and we've been in a process of trying to figure out like, how do we provide things to the community for free? How do we provide resources to the community? How do we bring things to the community that are like, we're figuring this out, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, and working with community to figure things out together that will serve community. And I'm trying to do that with more and more writing projects where it's not just like every book I make, the resources just come to me. Right. But instead, it's like when I make a book with community, then it's like, oh, good. How do those resources flow back towards the things that that nourish and feed that community? So I'm enjoying that process of trying to get more decentralized inside of how I think about what I create myself. And I think it, I think I could keep going. You know, I think a lot of us could keep going with that. Right. It's just like, OK. This is just the beginning of, you know, I definitely think that way about land. I'm mm. not very interested in like owning land just by myself. I am very right. interested in owning land with others and having that be something that's like not even owning land, but finding a relationship to land with mm-hmm. others that I don't know, however this sounds, but like for me, I would love to be in a relationship with the land where it felt like the land approved <laughs> the ah. land, you know, that we went through some process and the land was able to say, yes, yeah, this, is like, cool. this is cool. Y'all can be here. And so, yeah, beautiful. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Next question is about this role of those people who negotiate with the slavers who negotiate, right? So how do we orient to those who uphold our systems of oppression? Mm. How do we negotiate our needs? In the book here, it's the slavers. Um, in our current time, it we could see it as the corrections officers, the ICE officers, the border patrol, uh, the popo, right? And there are some of us I'm not one of them, but there's who I, every time I try to play this role, it was trouble for everybody. But there's some of us who are able to be that police liaison. Um, There are some of us who are able to go and negotiate with the legal system. I was just speaking with someone the other day, um, Gilda Shepard, who has made this outstanding film that I want to, I'm trying to support them to get like as far and wide as possible. But the film is called Since I've Been Down. And it is them going into this prison in Washington state where the prisoners have started this thing called the Black the Black Prisoner Caucus. And it's incredible, but you're watching them be like, oh, we have to negotiate with the prosecutors. We have to negotiate with the correctional mm-hmm. officers. We have to negotiate with this prison to be able to, to get access to them so that their voices can be heard outside of these walls. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, I have such deep respect, actually, for everything it takes in you to be able to go and negotiate and navigate for the liberation possible in this moment, which is liberating this person's voice. And hopefully the more and more people that hear that person's voice, the more people will help to navigate liberating him completely. Right. Yeah. So that's a question for people to ask is how, how do you orient to those folks? I think many of us have them in our families, in our communities. Right. Yeah. Like I think it's, it's rough, right? Because um, yeah. I know when last year when um, a lot of us were responding, you know, instigating on the Black Lives Matter uprising exactly. of 2020 and the defund the police, 
you know, call came out. Yeah. I was in, you know, several meetings and several like groups of people figuring out how to organize where people were like, depending on their jobs, that would be a problem for them that yes. they couldn't sign. Yeah. They couldn't, they, they could support. And it's not that they agree, didn't agree, you know, but they're like, that language is going to be a problem for who they are and what they do. And the, the places that they're, you know, working in. And one mm. of the calls was like to a very, you know, wide, you know, group of, of, of people. So there were people who, you know, worked and definitely worked with government and people who were already in conversations with trying to do community conversation with police. And then President mm-hmm. um, Obama came out and was like, you, you shouldn't say yeah. that because you're just going to lose people. And so I think it's, it really is this idea that, you know, you would negotiate with the people who are trying to actually kill you. So, yes. <laughs> but yes. I was, I think one of the things is, you know, that came to me, especially when, when President Obama really was, came out with that was, but we have been negotiating. We're like we've been, we're always yeah. been in negotiation. Like mm-hmm. I, I thought it was really I actually did a post where I was like just upset by what he mm-hmm. said. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons it was like, oh, you're acting like we haven't actually been at the table and been negotiating since we got here on these shores. Yes, and exactly. that, you know, or that indigenous communities haven't been in negotiation for their, you know, for their 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 land, their freedom, that that, that when mm-hmm. Something horrific happens, like the missing of of women, um, the of all kinds of communities of Black and Brown people. That people haven't like actually gone to authorities and said, "Hey, you know why? Why like your your job is to do something about this, and if you're not, like, why are you still here?" Yes. And the situation with ICE and the border is one of the most painful of my of of my existence you know and if if I say that like (laughs) this has been so many painful things but how it's just you can see it being used as a tool you know to actually destabilize like the you know early in this particular administration which you know all good people had a say in how this administration even got into power and so this administration is like actually people are allowed to come in for asylum and they're, you know, people are coming um, as they are allowed to do legally in this country. And so it's because the other administration was so criminal and stealing children and stealing people. It's Mm. almost like the platform is like, look at all these people who are not stolen (laughs) coming in. And that's a problem. And that is a test for Biden. And I'm like, that is a test for fucking America. That is a test for all of us. Like we need to get our shit together around humans and our 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 acceptance of putting them in a cage and then um, devaluing their lives and their existence yes. on this planet. So and their contributions to and their society. contributions <laughs> I'm to just society. Like, I'm like y'all love to have people serving you and working for you, um, and you hate to have it. You hate the moment when people call for equity yep. about what they have been offering, about the natural resources that have been taken about the labor that they That's have produced, right? right? So right. yeah, I really appreciate, I appreciate that, like all that you wove in there, because I do think, you know, I think about this all the time, that there's different roles for different people. And that there are some people who are like insider strategy. And there's some people who are like, oh, we have to be able to negotiate with with this horrific element or with that horrific element. And I really respect Octavia raising the question here yes. of, um, if you are strategically not in a position to take down an entire system yet, and there's an opportunity to save one life, there's an opportunity to save, you know, to find these sisters or, you know, yeah. then then who who in your community can do that work? How does that happen? How do you orient around it? And how do you do that while still keeping up the fight? Is that even possible? Right. And yes. I, I feel like in these stories and you know let's let's check back in on this later in the season but i feel like in these stories so much of what is happening is octavia's characters are working inside the limitations of their time that's right while her, while while the ideas the massive ideas are how they're moving against the meta systems 
Yeah, and that's beautifully said. So now we get into Marcus, which is mm. a huge shift in this story. And Marcus is very important. Marcus is someone who's going to be with us uh, in this story. And paying attention to, I think, paying attention to every single aspect of what happens with Marcus is something that will really behoove us as readers here. So in this first stage, we have Marcus coming back in intense trauma. So basically what we can imagine is that the entire time that Lauren has been on the road, Marcus has been in the hands of people who have been torturing him and sexually abusing him. And he has been enslaved. He has been used. He has been shot. He has been brutalized. And we don't know how all this happened. But what I think is so powerful is that we learn it all based on what's happened to his body. Mm-hmm. Right? His body tells the story first. Mm-hmm. And in a way, because of what his body is saying, we don't even need to know the details. Um, we know that the trauma is here. And That's that right. what, ha- what Marcus is walking in the door with is trauma. So my question to you as as our listeners is, we know that this trauma is in our community all the time. We see this all the time. We regularly see people in our communities who are clearly hurting, who are clearly having a breakdown, who are clearly being abused in their relationships or have been abused in their relationships. What do the Marcuses need? Mm. Right? What do the Marcuses need? How do we actually lovingly engage with our community who are traumatized, really traumatized, visibly, markedly shaped by trauma? And when we identify what's needed, right, what what do we have to offer to that need? Because I think a lot of times we don't make that distinction. (laughs) And I see us not make that distinction. It's like, here's what's needed. And then it's like we kind of expect some magical fairy to deliver therapy or to deliver um, a healing, you know, retreat or to deliver whatever those needs are, money, food, shelter, someone else will do it. And so the question I have is, what do Marcus's need? What do people like Marcus who are deeply traumatized need? And what do we have to offer towards that need? Yes. Yeah. That's a beautiful question. And I also, I'm also thinking about, you know, how do we get there and how does it just get so normalized? And the, I don't know if you have another question about that. If you do, I'll stop. <laughs> no, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, okay. Yeah, because I was I was reading today a bunch of stuff, and I just noticed how much everything that I read said the far left, the progressive mm-hmm. left, the right, uh-huh. the far right. The, the, like it's, and I was like, yes. that is that is such a that, like that's so harmful for our way of thinking because there is not anything that says what is right. Like yep. what is a what is a way that we can exist on the earth? It's almost a fear of saying what is right. And and it doesn't matter what you're talking about. Like mm. so when you you know, for example, when you're talking about ice and you know, ice rushing, you know, taking people and being like uh somebody who's lived here forever but maybe had a parent from Haiti and then just like, you know, yep. before the deadline, just kicking people out of the country. And that is that is seen as this is a, a right wing da da da. This is left over from Trump. This is da da da. And then people who are like, no, this this shouldn't happen. That's considered a left thing. And soon you're not talking about the thing itself. You're yes. talking about left and right. And I feel like That's right. that is so dangerous. It desensitizes us from the actual harm that's being done. It makes the the line of righteousness like kind of like this wobbly thing that could that doesn't actually exist and yeah. that there aren't like some some things that people um humans and living and breathing things on the planet need access to in order to live and it makes it seem like it's wrong when you're like well flint needs some water or it's wrong <laughs> when you know the people got mm. in in the south that got caught with the you know the snowstorm and the, and the very very cold weather and some folks still mm-hmm. don't have running water like it's wrong to ask for it and if somebody stands up for them politically they're a left leaning blah 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 and if somebody mm-hmm. says you know what it's okay that Texas basically made a game of electricity and didn't you know they're right wing people who want masks that's the right wing 
you know, people do that's a left wing, like, and there's, you yep. lose, yeah. you lose this idea of, of communal, like safety and communal consciousness mm-hmm. around the most devastating things. And I'm like, well, you know, it's okay if we're arguing about ice cream flavors. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's but, right. But no, it is. It's like the gamification <laughs> of, of society. Yeah. I really appreciate that distinction, Toshi. Yeah. You know? Because it does, then it comes down to stuff where it's like, we're talking about people's survival, our right to exist, our right to take care of our bodies. You know, in Detroit, we're coming out of winter. Um, But every winter, it's like, it's turned into a political issue if people will have access to heat, water, and home. That's wild. And we should. That's wild. And and it's, it's interesting because how do you get numb? You know, how do you get to where you can't see what's actually around you? How do you get to the point where you're sitting across the table from someone that has a, you know, a collar on your relative and That's you right. calmly, you know, negotiate for an hour? And, you know, how do you and how do you get to these points and how do you accept how we accept when you say, you know, right wing, there is an acceptance of of some really horrific human beings that don't think, <laughs> you know, a lot of people should be in existence. And right. they are valued as, you know, statespeople. So right, they, valued they, as, a, <laughs> as a political position. As a political position. So we're not mm-hmm. talking about what they actually believe anymore. That's like a little snippet. They said this thing. They did this thing. Everybody on Instagram, they did this thing. But they get to walk and vote, make decisions on the lives and the, you know, the country and the the planet and everything else as if they know what they're talking about and that they care Mm. when they actually Mm. have an agenda to be, to brutalize people that they don't, that they don't like. And I think that, that part of our participation as citizens, as community, Mm -hmm. where we are so discouraged around the level of leadership that's available for us on that platform, it it really will take us, I think, a very strong kind of inner institution <laughs> of ourselves yes. to yeah. keep saying out loud what is actually happening and to keep saying yeah. out loud like what we are looking at and what we are dealing with and not to numb down and be like, you know, well, the left people are doing this and the right people are doing that. And to stay, right. you know, stay really on our paths with all of the issues because that's, yeah. that's, you know, that's happening. I feel like Octavia was like, look, here we are in the 90s. And I'm going to tell you, like, this is what's going on, <laughs> you know. Yes. And yeah, really clearly. Very clearly. It's it's all can happen. and um, But I don't think it has to. It's amazing to me how much mcconnell pence and trump's beings have shifted so quickly after a coup (laughs) it's unbelievable trump is calmly discussed you know (laughs) mitch mcconnell 79 year old Uh mitch mcconnell nobody talks about that pence was in charge of covid at all exactly at all nobody talks about it and the lives yeah and all of the lives so i it'll be the jobs of of community and people to continue this you know well and i think you know the thing that occurs to me as you're talking is not just the the how do we get numb in the first place like how do we get to that place because i'm like well we're socialized to be numb from from jump Um, that like capitalism benefits from us being numb and thinking that nothing can change. So I'm like, I I see how we get there. And I'm curious, like, how do we (laughs) de-numb? Like, you know, when we have been socialized to think that everything is someone else's responsibility or everything is someone else's fault or there's nothing we can do, how do we reawaken in ourselves? How do we reawaken a part that says, wait, I can do something and it is my responsibility to take action here. Like humans are hurting and there's something I can do to help, right? Right. And what is, how do we start to reclaim some responsibility inside of it? And I love that because it is, you know, it is like sometimes just the simple intervention of like, y'all, this is happening, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know? 
Like, like these people are just getting up here and talking on television as if they could be pundits right. when we know that they're murderers um, and who have not taken any accountability or been held to any account for the lives that, that they lost us. Right. And in the book, I feel like that, that question is asked again and again, it's like, where are the inner, where are the places where we have to just negotiate to get our people free? Mm-hmm. And then where are the p- potential, you know, the, the points of intervention, um, direct action. We talk about that, you know, it's like, where are the places where we could intervene? Is right. it at the point of production? Is it the point of distribution? Is it the point of labor? You know, like what, where can we make an intervention, a, throw the, the wrench in the gears that will mm-hmm. actually disrupt the machine completely. And I find myself, and we'll get back to this multiple times in this book, but like, where do we throw the wrench in the gears to stop slavery? Right. Because um, I think we're doing that right now. We have to try to do that we and really every day know. and all the time until it's it's done. And, and we have, to me, it's always like, oh, the first step of that is acknowledging that we are still in slavery. <laughs> yeah. That's, that slavery is still there. And, and I like, you can't do an intervention on a system that you don't acknowledge exists. Mm. Um, so do you think, yeah. Do you yeah. think that Lauren's practice of, of being a sharer and Octavia's intentional, like putting in, you know, this hyper empathy line into the story is helpful in these situations? Cause I Absolutely. thought it, I thought it was with the negotiation and Absolutely. even looking like at, at parable, um, of the sower when she starts to test her range. Absolutely. I, I deeply feel like part of what she's exploring in the text is that there are no people that she meets for whom she cannot have some empathy for whatever they're experiencing, for what they're feeling, that she can feel that they have feeling. Um, and then it's like what happens from that point, you know? Mm. Um, I think the thing that's so interesting is that she cannot organize for anything different to happen around those feelings in isolation and that slow realization that she has that so I can feel it all and I can share it all, but I need community in order to change anything. Mm. And I want to change it all, Mm. you know? And I think so many of us who have increased empathy or in touch with our empathy at all have that same experience of, I get, you know, we get overwhelmed by how much we can feel and shocked that everyone can't feel it. And then isolate ourselves sometimes to survive it. And then eventually realize like surviving is not enough. It has to change. And I think community organizing is mostly made up of people who've gone through that cycle and been yeah. like, it hurts. I can't handle it by myself. Together, we'll try to change it, you know. Mm-hmm. A little bonus homework for this one. If you're interested in it, this is totally just like if this resonates for you, but I found myself really moved this time because we've been in the pandemic and away from family and we've had to lose people without getting to see them. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's just people that normally we would have gone to each other's funerals. We would know for sure this person's gone in a way that I recognize. So I thought about like, what would it feel like if someone that I thought was lost wasn't and returned to me? Um, and I wanted to offer that to y'all as something that maybe is a healing or a cathartic exercise is to write a story of rediscovery for someone that you thought you've lost forever. And then a last question, do you think Dan is being brave or being foolish? Because we've seen this coming. I knew, you know, I think we all knew it's like Dan is going to go. Dan's going to mm-hmm. have to go. And I really, I appreciate the need to go. You know, I have sisters and I, I really feel the, the just the, the the pounding, pulsing pressure of that, of knowing that your siblings are alive. And I love the juxtaposition of Lauren finding sibling that she did not know was alive mm-hmm. and Dan being like, I've got to go find mine because I, I know that they were. So yeah, you get the that is our chapter. He could almost not um, contain it inside his body. He had to do something. He can't. He can't bear it. He can't bear it. And I really love the integrity of him, of him just being like, I I cannot, I I can't even make the compromises that are necessary to like go through this process again. Like I would rather risk it all and go out there and try to find them somehow than like have to sit one more time with someone who could be 
a, a slaveholder of them and others and try to talk to them. I can't do that. No. And it's, you know, it's all, it's all, you know, I feel like Octavia is just like without judgment. This is, these are all the ways that people are surviving this. And where do you fit into it all? We're in the deeper waters now. We're in the deeper waters now. So again, take care of yourself, right? Sit with this as it, as it feels useful, as it feels like, you know, it moves with you. And we're going to just keep on asking the questions and seeing what all we can learn from this. So Octavia's Parables is hosted by Toshi Regan and myself, Adrian Marie Brown. We are produced by Kat Aaron with help from Kenzie Clark. And our show art is by Krista Franklin. Always See the Stars is written and uh, performed by Toshi Regan. And God Has Changed is performed by Toshi Regan and Bernice Johnson Regan and written by Toshi Regan. And Angels um, is sung by Toshi Regan and Bernice Johnson Regan and uh, arranged by Bernice Johnson Regan. Mm, delicious. You can find us on Twitter at Oparables, on our website where all of our transcripts live at readingoctavia.com, or you can sustain our show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Oparables. We'll see you next time for Chapter 7. Thank you. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change.